James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Jesus said, What is it you want me to do for you? They said, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said, You don't know what you're asking me. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized in the baptism that I'm baptized with? They said, we are able. And Jesus said, you will drink from the cup that I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism with which I have been baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the other ten disciples heard about this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them all together and he said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they regard as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. For any who wish to become great among you must become your servant. And those who wish to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The Gospel of the Lord. This is one of those moments when I feel like Jesus regrets some of the things that he says sometimes. Like the time he said, ask and it will be given to you. Or when he said, everyone who asks receives. Or the time he promised that I will do whatever you ask in my name. Because James and John, the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee really take him up on that this morning, right? They sound like a couple of spoiled, rotten kids in this gospel. They're selfish. It seems they're entitled. It seems, and they're not even trying to hide it. They're the kind of entitled that has no shame. They don't even know that they're supposed to be embarrassed about being so bold. And I want to be mad at them for that, like the other ten disciples were, but maybe I shouldn't blame them. Maybe they were just asking Jesus like he told them to, taking him up on his offer, holding him to his word. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. You said we could. There's no hemming and hawing. There's no beating around the bush. They don't even try to bargain with him. We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And we can't tell it from here, but I like to imagine that Jesus was a little exasperated by it. What is it now that you want me to do for you? And when they request the best seats in the kingdom, when they tell him they want to be front and center on the other side of God's heaven, Jesus tells them they don't understand what they're talking about that they really have no idea what they're asking for. When Jesus 
says they will drink the cup that he drinks. When he says they'll be baptized with the baptism with which he's been baptized, he's not talking about the cup of wine that they will share not so far into their future at the Last Supper. They couldn't have known that yet. No, the cup he's really talking about is the one he prays about in the Garden of Gethsemane before his arrest and crucifixion. Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Even Jesus wasn't sure he wanted to drink from that cup. And the baptism he's talking about isn't just that holy moment in the river with his cousin, John the Baptist, when he came up from the water, when the dove descended from the heavens, when a voice declared him to be God's holy, chosen, beloved son. All that would and would be part of it, but James and John didn't know. They couldn't imagine. Maybe they'd forgotten the temptation that followed that beautiful moment in the river. And, of course, the promised suffering and death that were to come along with that baptism, too. And just like James and John, none of us like to always hear all of those promises either. None of this is how the world operates. All of this is summed up in the promise we heard last week in the scripture just before what we heard this morning when Jesus tells his disciples that many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Because a front row seat in God's kingdom means becoming a servant. Glory is achieved by becoming a slave. It means heading to the end of the line. It means giving more than you take, sharing more than you ask for yourself, not being served, but serving. Those sitting at the right hand and the left of Jesus in his glory, remember, were a couple of criminals Convicted, crucified, condemned to die on that cross at Calvary. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. You have no idea what you're asking of me. I just recently read about a man named Maximilian Colby who was born in Poland in 1894 and who, after experiencing a vision of the Virgin Mary at the age of 12, signed up for a life of humility, purity, holiness, and martyrdom. What were you doing when you were 12? Colby eventually became a Franciscan friar. He earned a Ph.D. in philosophy. He built monasteries in Japan and India. He honored his commitment to the Virgin Mary. And when the Nazis invaded Poland, Colby was told he could earn enhanced rights and privileges, that he could get a better seat at the front of the line, you might say, in exchange for just signing a document that acknowledged his German heritage. Colby 
refused to do that. He also refused to stop publishing religious texts and books and essays which were critical of Hitler and the Nazis and their evil, oppressive regime. Eventually, he was arrested by the Gestapo and imprisoned at Auschwitz, where he continued to live out his call, the one he made when he was just 12, to a life of purity and love and compassion and all the rest, for which he suffered mightily. In July 1941, ten prisoners escaped from Auschwitz, and in order to deter other prisoners from doing more of the same in the future, ten other prisoners were chosen to be deliberately starved to death in an underground bunker there. And when one of those ten protested that he had a wife and children, Maximilian Kolbe volunteered to take that man's place and to receive his punishment, too. According to witnesses, Maximilian Kolbe led the condemned men in regular prayer throughout their punishment, their starvation, and their demise in that bunker. And Kolbe himself lasted for two weeks of that torture, and he was the last of those condemned men to die, ultimately requiring a lethal injection, which, according to witnesses, he accepted peaceably with courage and grace. We want to be first, but we think that means being the best or the fastest. We want to know peace and comfort, but we think that means having more power and more money and more things and more stuff. We want to walk more closely with Jesus, but we're not always willing to follow all the places where he leads. We want to be successful, but we use all the wrong measuring sticks to determine what that means for ourselves or what that looks like in this world. What Jesus shows us and what faithful souls like Maximilian Kolbe live is what it looks like to serve rather than to be served. To choose others over and above ourselves, to give instead of take, to find victory and loss, to become a slave, a suffering servant, like the one the prophet Isaiah described a minute ago. What Jesus shows us and what Maximilian Kolbe learned and lived in ways I cannot fathom is that to sit at the right hand of Jesus isn't just a position to which we will be promoted someday. To sit at the right hand of Jesus is a position to which each and every one of us is called to experience somehow right where we live on this side of heaven, too. This is where we're called to drink the cup. 
here is where we're invited to live out the calling of our baptism. And as hard as that is sometimes, as much courage and faith and generosity and sacrifice as that may invite us to, we are blessed with this God in Jesus who never asks us to do something God hasn't already done first and for our sake to give generously, to sacrifice, to suffer, to become a servant, to die even. And that's Jesus' invitation to James and to John and to the other disciples and to each and every one of us, just the same as we live in this strange pole between the kingdom of God as we hope for it to be and our lives in this world that surrounds us. And there are a million ways we can practice answering the call of our baptism that don't look anything like starvation and martyrdom in a Nazi death camp, thanks be to God. I think it means giving away our money. I think it means helping refugees find new homes. I think it means building homes in Haiti, helping with the Sunrise Bible Study, serving as a Stephen minister. I think it means saying I'm sorry and proving it. I think it means saying I forgive you and meaning it. I think it means cleaning the bathrooms at church, mowing the lawn at church, doing some yard work outside at church. I think it means serving in the nursery at church. I think it means teaching Sunday school at church. I think it means sitting with the lonely kid in the cafeteria or picking the last kid first on the playground every once in a while. There are a million ways we can practice what it means to be a servant and a slave in God's kingdom that don't have anything to do or come anywhere near to martyring ourselves at a death camp of the Nazis, thanks be to God. Because we're called to be servants. We're called not to ask, what can I get, but what can I give? And how much and to whom? Just like Jesus did when he climbed onto a cross, when he crawled out of a tomb, when he made his way into our hearts so that we could share the grace of God in as many ways as we can manage, and so that through sharing it humbly, selflessly, generously, with hope, but not hope for worldly gain, not hope for worldly recognition, not hope for worldly reward, but so that we might experience God's kind of glory most fully ourselves and for the benefit and blessing of somebody else. In Jesus' name, amen.